Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Marietje Schack, is a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands. Marietje is someone I've known for many years. We were both alums of Humanity in Action from our university days, and it was great to catch up with her and learn about her work as an MEP. When Marietje first joined the European Parliament, she was 30 years old, and she candidly discusses the kinds of challenges she faced as a young woman navigating what was then and still is mostly an old men's club. We caught up shortly after a series of consequential elections in Europe, including the victory of Emmanuel Macron in France and the surprising near defeat of Theresa May in the United Kingdom, and we kick off this conversation discussing the current state of right-wing populism in Europe and the effect that Donald Trump is having on European politics. I must say, this conversation is a great explainer of how the European Parliament works. We use Mariche's efforts to create some rules of the road for digital trade as an entry point to discuss the procedures, processes, and politics of the European Parliament and the EU more broadly. Fascinating stuff. I learned a lot. I suspect you will, too. I've posted a link to Mariche's website on globaldispatchespodcast.com. It's marichescheck.eu, where you can learn more about her work and her policies on issues of international and transatlantic concern. Mariche is vice president of the U.S. delegation, among other committee assignments. You can also watch Mariche and I have this conversation on bloggingheads.tv. And one note before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to you, the listener out there. Thank you so much. I hear from listeners almost every day telling me how they find this podcast meaningful, how it's made an important contribution to how they see the world, to how you see the world. And it means a lot to me that this podcast means a lot to you. Thank you. If you're so moved, please leave a review on iTunes or just tell a friend, colleague about the show. That's how that's how we've been growing. And of course, do feel free to send me an email. I love hearing from you. If you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, anything that's on your mind, go to the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com and I'll get your email. Thank you so much. And now here is Marietje Schack, member of the European Parliament. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It seems to me, and I could be wrong, that this populist moment, uh, this populist wave seems to be ebbing a little bit. Is that your impression? Are we kind of beyond this populist moment in Europe right now? Well, I think it's too early to say that, frankly. I mean, uh, uh, some of the 
fears or hopes, depending on how you look at it, of, you know, massive victories for nationalist protectionist parties in the Netherlands, in France, has certainly not materialized. Um, in the UK, we see uh, sort of near death of the UK Independence Party with a drastically diminished uh, amount of seats in local elections, uh, parliamentary elections. In France, of course, the, the victory of uh, Marine Le Pen never happened. So, um, of course, if you look at those expectations of them sort of landsliding uh, in elections, then yes, uh, that wave has uh, has withdrawn. But I think if you look uh, at at the relative strength of these parties in the Netherlands, if you look at the fragmentation of the political landscape, it would be far too early to say that we're past populism in Europe. I mean, it seems there was like this this peak with uh, the Theresa May election, if nothing else, and also, you know, some strong showings at the polls um, before the elections, before the votes were cast by like Claret Wilders and then Marine Le Pen. Is there a sense that at least we're on the way down, though not quite past it yet? I don't think you can really draw any one single conclusion for all of Europe. So in the UK, many will argue that one of the reasons why the UK Independence Party is no longer relevant or no longer successful is not only because of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, scandals and, and question marks about their representatives, but also because the Tories have pretty much adopted their agenda. They wanted the UK out of the EU. That's going to happen. So one of their biggest agenda points has been realized. Uh, Theresa May is, is full on uh, uh, heading towards a, a hard Brexit. So part of the story is that the mainstream or the center has adopted some of the policies that the populists were initially uniquely pushing. Hmm. Um, of course, in France, we see something different. I mean, the antidote to a populist, nationalist, protectionist, xenophobic uh, Marine Le Pen, Emmanuel Macron, won a landslide. Uh, after he won the presidential elections, people were skeptical. They were like, oh, is he going to realize uh, a strong backing in the parliament? And then, yes, he did. So um, uh, that's another example. In Germany, there is no such threatening or, or strong phenomenon uh, to um, to Merkel's power. And her biggest opponent is a social democrat. Essentially, they're both fairly mainstream centrist uh, candidates. So um, again, it's a mixed bag. Uh, in many countries, traditional parties are certainly still dominant, but it doesn't mean that there is not an impact, an influence of the populists mm -hmm. still lingering either by influencing them or continuing to challenge them. So what you say about how sort of these populist movements affecting mainstream politics by getting mainstream parties to adopt some positions that, you know, years ago would have been inconceivable is, is something I've, I've heard before from commentators. Can you describe mm -hmm. how that process is playing itself out in, in the Netherlands? Um, are you seeing mainstream parties in the Netherlands, you know, adopt some populist either rhetoric or, or actual policies? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think in the last elections, we saw very clearly that the Christian Democrats, who have historically been, you know, pro-European, they're in the same political family as Angela Merkel, um, were, were suddenly coming up with all this sort of patriotic, nationalist kind of rhetoric about singing the national anthem, about um, uh, being against uh, the association agreement with Ukraine, uh, about refugees, etc. So we really saw a shift from their traditional trajectory, tra their traditional path of being fairly solidly anchored in the center to really some some uh, very populist or at least leaning to the populist uh, mm. movements. And the same has been said about 
Mark Rutte, the, the uh, acting prime minister and uh, leader of the largest political party in the Netherlands, when it comes to asylum seekers, when it comes to the EU, that a very skeptical, negative uh, tone has really uh, become a larger part of the rhetoric and the program of these parties. So is it probably fair to describe D66, your party, and for like an American audience, as kind of like left, center, left party? Uh, I would say it's a progressive party. We're probably uh, similar to the Democratic Party, but the progressive side of the Democratic Party. Okay. Now, like, have there been um, challenges to your own kind of party's philosophy by this populism? Or are you kind of staking out like the, you know, hashtag resistance? In other words, you know what I mean? Like, 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 have you thought to co-op some of this rhetoric no. Um, at all? No, on the contrary, okay. on the contrary. And I think that's another part of the story, too. I think the best parallel you can draw between my party and other phenomena in, in the EU is that of Emmanuel Macron. Uh, you know, we had a program that was uh, titled Opportunities for Everybody. We're very keen uh, to focus on education, diminishing the differences in opportunity uh, inequalities as early as possible in life. We are uh, optimistic about the future. We are very green. We are very pro-European. Uh, we we have sort of a international outlook. Mm -hmm. And so um, in that sense, it's very similar to what Emmanuel, um, Emmanuel Macron has been uh, uh, doing in France. The difference being that we are a political party uh, that has grown more than 50% in the elections. And Emmanuel Macron was, of course, a newcomer. Uh, without a party. So that's a bit different, but the narrative mm -hmm. and the success are similar. Um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, about the kind of uh, effect that Trump is is having on politics in Europe. Um, do you see, and there's been like some speculation, some commentary here in the US, at least, I don't know what the commentary is in Europe, that you know, the part of the reason you're seeing, uh, you saw like the Macron victory, and then again, this these big victories on on the the legislative level in in France, and the uh, defeat of of May in the UK again earlier this week, uh, was this kind of almost a buyer's remorse that Europeans are seeing Americans having over electing Trump and seeing how kind of unpredictable he is, that his unpopularity is affecting politics in in Europe. Well, first, of course, we had the Brexit referendum. And looking at the United Kingdom, it is definitely chaotic. And it is not evident that uh, the promises that some of these populist movements are making can be realized as easily as they are suggesting. And obviously, the same goes for Trump, right? Sweeping promises, very provocative language. And then what, what's next when they're in power? And so I do think that people who may have wanted to uh, bring out a protest vote, uh, who are frustrated with the status quo, have thought twice because they saw it could actually materialize. It was not just a protest vote to protest um, uh, against the status quo with, with you know, a voice, but it could actually really have significant impact on the future of the country. So I think that's part of it. We also saw someone like Geert Wilders, the leader of our nationalist party, uh, the so-called Freedom Party, um, stepping like you away call it from... The so-called Freedom Party. Well, I think freedom <laughs> needs different <laughs> programs to be to be realized, so it is called the Freedom Party. Um, but, you know, uh, I think the, the name is deceiving. Yeah. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll add an asterisk in the, in the transcript, right? Okay, that's good. Thank you. So, um, 
essentially, I think Mr. Wilders was also stepping away from embracing Trump. First, it was like we, you know, uh, the nationalists, uh, populists, uh, protectionist forces are winning. You know, the world is changing. It will never be the same again. You, you all in the political center, the elites, I mean, you know, the rhetoric, it's all very similar, should be afraid, uh, you know, etc., etc. And uh, that obviously did not materialize in the way in which they had hoped. Um, so in a way, you can say that it has had a bit of a wake-up call effect, also in strengthening um, the 27 member states uh, with regard to Brexit, in the sense that they need to prioritize and, and have a clear vision of the future of Europe together, uh, and also vis-a-vis -vis the United States. But I think if you look at Trump's impact in Europe, you also see some other tendencies that are worrying. I mean, when President Trump decided to um, step away from the Paris Agreement on climate change, um, I think we saw headlines or I observed headlines all over European media kind of saying, okay, so now it's time to look towards China. And I think that that's a very simplified perspective on what global order means on the value of the transatlantic relation that I think we should really not, uh, um, you know, underestimate. And so I am also worried about the ease with which people are declaring the end of the transatlantic anchor, the end of the transatlantic world order, and even some anti-Americanism really, um, you know, surfacing again after having been more invisible for a while. So it's, it's obviously not the end of the transatlantic order, the transatlantic relations, but certainly there are changes coming. And I'm wondering, just yeah. from, from where you sit in the European Parliament, how is Trump affecting the ongoing conversation, the debate in, in Parliament? I mean, what what is like the, the Trump effect, as it were, on sort of your conversation with your colleagues? I think there's a very clear gravitation towards the need for a stronger Europe as a global player. There's uncertainty about the U.S.'s commitment towards NATO. Uh, you know, first, the president didn't want to echo his commitment to Article 5. Then the vice president um, and other high-level officials from the United States visited Europe in, in a number of meetings, the Munich Security Conference, uh, NATO summit, uh, G20 meeting, etc. And we're trying to, um, to uh, comfort, basically, to reassure the Europeans that actually the U.S. was still committed. But then the president made a visit to uh, the new headquarters of NATO. It was supposed to be a commemorative um, uh, meeting. And again, he uttered very provocative words and actually neglected to confirm the U.S.'s commitment to Article 5. And I think that those uncertainties about where the U.S. actually stands have led to a gravitation towards stronger defense cooperation. And I think it was high time. Um, I think, you know... Consecutive presidents from the U.S. have had a point in asking the Europeans to also step up their commitment um, to uh, to a strong and effective NATO. But this, this is certainly one of the key topics that I see surfacing. And I think, you know, more of a position towards strengthening multilateralism, towards a rules-based order, whether it's on climate, whether it's on trade, whether it's on human rights, is really uh, yeah, a trend that I hear and, and a real and a call and a push to a stronger Europe uh, in, in that role. Can you point to a conversation that you've had with a colleague or, you know, within, within the European Parliament that speaks directly to this question of how 
European politics has changed between the Obama and Trump administration. So like, is there any particular moment that kind of crystallizes this change for, for you? Like, is there a conversation that you could not have imagined having had during the Obama administration that you're having right now? It's hard to pinpoint because it's just been such a, uh, a consistent trend, right? As a point of reference to have this new president in the white house with such a different uh, agenda. But I think, a few moments stand out for me. One is, you know, these these different meetings when the president had been elected but not inaugurated yet with people like Nigel Farage, leader uh, of the UK Independence Party at the time, uh, links with uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, comments by the president that he believed that Brexit was actually a great idea and that he was hoping that there would be more um, of such uh, moves by, by member states. So going directly against where the majority and the sitting governments of all these EU member states are, which is towards a strong Europe. And so the notion that there was a drastic change, but also the notion that there was a parallel foreign policy coming from the White House versus um, the uh, the um, uh, departments, basically, the administration, uh, was, was very clear. And so I think those were important moments. The comments about NATO, the withdrawal of the... Pri- Paris climate agreements, but also the comments on trade. I mean, you know, the United States has been the flag bearer, whatever you call it, um, uh, of a free trade and a rules-based system, often going much further than what Europeans would even uh, appreciate. And suddenly you have a U.S. saying, you know, we're going to tear, you have a U.S. president saying we're going to tear up uh, NAFTA, withdrawing signature from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so much change and uncertainty and and very, very strong, provocative, and at times really aggressive rhetoric uh, is is disturbing. And then the last thing I think that is is, um, a key thing I would would mention is the impact on the US's moral authority, moral standing. Mm -hmm. When you have a president attacking the press, when you have a president attacking minorities, I mean, these are not the values that I think we should share and that we have shared uh, since World War II and that have allowed us to take the lead in building a rules-based order. Have we been perfect? No. Should we aspire to be better? Yes. And I think that this president is really, really damaging that promise. Uh, but tell me how you really feel, Maricha. <laughs> um, so, what do you mean? What more do you want to hear? <laughs> I just, think this uh, is a summary. <laughs> Um, no, I was, I was, I was, I was being sarcastic. It, it hurts to hear from you because you know you're someone I admire. I've, I've learned from so much over the years, and I've, I've watched kind of rise in politics. So this is, it's, it's refreshing to hear your perspective on these kind of issues that I'm, I'm living through each day. You know, uh, you know, watching, watching. But don't this country. you hear that every day in the U.S.? Every day, multiple times a day. Yeah. But it's, it's different when you one when, when uh, you hear it from a, a foreigner. Uh, two, when you hear it from like a foreigner you know and have known for a while and, and who you respect. So it, it just, it, it like, it hurts a little bit, but you know, we're, we're doing what well, we can. Maybe just to, to soften the, the pain a bit. I mean, I am convinced that the resilience of civil society in the United States, uh, that the checks and balances are very much at work as we speak. Uh, and I also hear lots of people who are working in government, who are, uh, in all kinds of jobs, in the private sector, who are students, who are in academia, um, basically, you know, all kinds of Americans who are still very much uh, appreciating the bonds with Europe, 
mm-hmm. uh, understanding that it's not only a policy, but that it's a personal relationship. You know, the, the, the United States is built up to a large extent by immigrants who came from Europe. And um, uh, there are so many personal ties as well that, you know, of course, the person in highest office can have a lot of influence. And we're seeing this unfolding day by day. But at the same time, you know, there are many more people who, who are responsible, who play uh, roles of influence and who can actually now step up uh, to, to basically engage uh, with Europe. We had, you know, very senior um, senators uh, visiting us right after the president has had finished his visit to Europe. And I really see this also as signs coming from the political establishment that Europe matters and that it's time to make sure that this bond does not get broken too easily. So even though you have the, 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 the president saying one thing, you're seeing sort of the, the below the federal level even, um, or, or below the presidential level, other members of, of the political establishment civil society wanting to try to correct what, what Trump has done and try to strengthen bonds? Well, I mean, look, we're all on the internet. Uh, I'm on social media all the time. Every morning I wake up, of course, because of the time difference. I look curiously what, is, what has happened in the United States. And it's like a waterfall of news that's quite overwhelming. But at the same time, you know, by the time a story is reported, the the criticism is already uh, out there as well. I think there are uh, a lot of developments on a grassroots level of mobilization, membership uh, and contributions to to media, new media initiatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, The courts are are, uh, applying scrutiny. So, I mean... I'm not I'm not at all trying to diminish what is going on and the concerns that I have. Again, not only as a politician, but as a person, I'm deeply concerned about uh, what the president is doing. Um, I think he can do a lot of damage. But I also think that there are ways to uh, to push back. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do agree. I think you, you have seen the like a strengthening of civil society in the wake of of the Trump uh, presidency in a way that was kind of surprising to me. Um, at the same time, while this sort of our institution of civil society seems to be strengthening, our institutions of politics, Congress in particular, seems to be um, seems to be failing right now. But we'll see how this, yes. this plays out. This is all that happening in like real with. time. That I agree with. Uh, well, I, I would love to switch gears a little bit and, and learn more about the European Parliament. Uh, you know, it's it's an institution I think everyone listening and watching has heard of, but I suspect, and, and frankly, I admit to not knowing exactly sort of what it does, what role it serves. So can you, well, I, I, first of all, I, w- I want to talk about sort of the European Parliament more broadly, what it does, how it works, and then talk about your role in it, how you operate as an individual member of the European Parliament. So for a mostly American audience unfamiliar with the European Parliament, how, how would you describe what you do, what it does? So I'm an elected member of the European Parliament, and it, it's best compared to the House of Representatives on the federal level. So from all countries of the European Union, i.e. all states, um, people are directly elected and represent uh, the people that have elected them. For a period of five years, uh, we are 750 members, and so every country has a set number of representatives corresponding roughly to their population. So in the case of the Netherlands, we are 26 members representing 17 million people, 
and uh, the vote is distributed um, proportionally. So there is one national platform, there are elections, uh, and then you know the, the the pie is basically divided between the different political parties. Um, together on the European level, we work in what what I would call political families. So like-minded political families from all these different uh, member states sit together in uh, larger groups. So you have a Christian Democratic, so a conservatives group. You have a, a more conservative group that includes like the British Tories and the Polish government party. You have uh, groups with, with the nationalist uh, groups together. You have social Democrats like labor parties working together. You have uh, liberals. That's where, where my political home is. You have green parties working together. So it is really a, a broad coalition of like-minded parties that makes your political home. And then, what what is the largest of these uh, political families in the European the Parliament Christian, right now? The Christian Democrats. So that's basically uh, the political party of Chancellor Merkel and her mm-hmm. like-minded um, individuals. Okay. Um, and so, so you, you form these families and do you push for policies sort of like as a family? Well, you have responsibilities in committees. So just like in the House of Representatives, every member serves on two committees. I think it's the same in the U.S. So I serve on the Trade Committee and on the Committee on Foreign Affairs. And so my work as a result focuses mostly on topics that fall under those um, committees. Uh, And then if I have an idea, so for example, right now, I would like to work on a report uh, that addresses challenges and questions about digital trade. And so I want to take this initiative. And before I can take this initiative, of course, I should have the support of my own political group. It's a bit of a a disappointment and a sort of weak starting point if I would go try to build a majority with other political groups while I don't even have the backing of my own. Mm -hmm. So basically to have support from your own political group is kind of a starting point. And usually it's not difficult because people are, you know, generally like minded and would on substance agree. Sometimes there's Uh, a bit of a um, battle about who should be the core responsible. You know, you know, the phenomenon of a popular file, everybody wants it, who's going to be responsible. This is all sort of normal parliamentary politics. But what's different, uh, if you compare it to the House of Representatives, where, you know, there's, there's a majority that is set and a minority that's set. Here we have uh, to build majorities around every vote, essentially. There's no set coalition in government, no set opposition. So in theory, there can be a different majority for each and every vote. So so I'd love to talk about the substance of your digital trade idea, but I want to follow this thread about how it works first. So say your yeah. digital trade proposal is is adopted by the European Parliament. Is it, it, Does it become adopted by like a majority vote? Normally, yes. It kind of depends. Okay. Sometimes you need a qualified, like a larger majority, mm-hmm. but uh, let's say yes, uh, and, half plus mm-hmm. one. And so then what happens? So um, we, as the European Parliament, are one of three EU institutions. The Parliament is directly elected by the people. Then you have the European Commission. And there is one commissioner from every member state. But they kind of act as um, the daily, leading the daily operation. So you have a commissioner for international trade who has a large uh, department of experts that work on trade that she leads. You have a commissioner for economic affairs. 
that deals with economic matters, one for transportation, one for education and culture issues, mm-hmm. one for migration and asylum, etc., etc. So these people have sort of substance-based portfolios, and though they, although they are deployed by their member state, appointed by their member state, they don't represent their member state. It's just for equal division. Mm-hmm. They're mostly concerned with their substantial portfolio. They initiate law. The European Commission initiates law, uh, usually supported by the governments or encouraged by the governments of the member states or encouraged by us in the European Parliament. The third pillar of the EU institutions are the governments of the member states, what we call the council. And they are elected on the national level um, and they come together in configurations also thematic. So you can have um, summits where the heads of state come together, but you can also have economic councils where all the ministers for economic affairs come together or a defense council where all the ministers of defense come together. And these three institutions, the council of ministers of member states, the commission uh, of substantial portfolio holders and the parliament representing the people are in a sort of checks and balances relationship with each other and make laws that, that apply to all of the EU together. Mm-hmm. And, and so a, a proposal has to pass muster in each of those three pillars in order to become like pan-European policy. Yeah, to, to keep it simple, because these procedures are slightly complicated, yes. but normally we engage in a, in a negotiation between the three. We call these trilogues. So <laughs> each, each part, the Commission, the Council and the Parliament comes yeah. with a proposal, what we want. Uh, and then a negotiated outcome has to be voted or adopted in each respective side before it becomes law. So you're now in your second term. Do you still come across acronyms that you have no idea what they mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like every single day, I would imagine. It just sounds like such a gigantic bureaucracy. No, it's actually not. It's I not? mean, okay. uh, the, no, at the, at the European Commission, um, around as many bureaucrats are employed as in a, a, a city in the Netherlands. Okay, so it's actually fairly lean. And I would imagine there's yeah, probably like a lot of political um, political impetus to keep it fairly lean, right? That, that governments don't want to have to pay the salaries of international civil servants more than they have to. Um, yeah, the, the, the tendency to cut budgets all the time is definitely present here. And I actually think it's a, a bit of a paradoxical contrast with the demand on people's time and demand mm-hmm. on access to information. And people want to raise their voices. Somebody should obviously, you know listen to different stakeholders, take their opinions on board. So, you know, democracy still costs money. And if you want to do it well, you need to make sure it's well organized. But yeah, I mean, I'm also very much in favor of as lean as possible. So can we talk about your your digital trade proposal and, and your idea and, and just kind of talk through the substance of, of what that entails and what it is? Sure. So so what what is it? <laughs> so maybe just a little bit of a step back to to explain that I work a lot on trade issues and I believe that um, it is very important in times of hyperconnectivity and globalization to have rules that sort of frame these trade flows. So there's global trade flows, but it's really important that there's rules that ensure that there are standards when it comes to labor law, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to uh, fundamental rights, when it comes to quality of products, etc., So that you don't have globalization as a race to the bottom, but that you have rules that take off the sharpest edges. 
And so this is kind of my general outlook on what our task is as lawmakers when it comes to trade. So a lot of people talk about free trade um, and it sort of has a connotation of, you know, survival of the fittest, whoever can can um, manage the best in this globalized world is the big winner. That's not how I look at it. I think that we, we still have to make sure that laws um, balance out this trade between uh, richer and poorer countries, uh, but also that we at home in our national policies ensure that the macroeconomic gains of, of trade are evenly distributed. So the idea that you need rules around trade is very important. Now, if we look at um, trends in where money is made and, and how global economy looks, it's no longer mostly about goods that are traded, but certainly also services. And then if you look at these services, a lot of them are digitizing. So digital services or digital um, processing of data is becoming a much bigger element of almost every sector. So not just uh, the service sector in a traditional sense, like, you know, uh, um, an architect being able to work uh, from, from India, uh, theoretically, you know, to design a home uh, on his or her computer um, in India for a client in, in the UK. But also uh, industry is, is digitizing, uh, manufacturing is digitizing, healthcare is digitizing, almost everything is digitizing. And so as a result, you have major questions about what the rules should be about data, data flows, digital services all over the world. Like what kinds of rules? So for example, um, if you look at a country like China, um, there is systematic censorship. And this keeps out companies um, from, from the US or from Europe that may want to offer, let's say, social media in China. And so is censorship a trade barrier, I think is a very legitimate question. Of course, it's a human rights issue. Uh, you and I care a lot about human rights and, uh, you know, the, the universality of human rights. But the question is, should it also be uh, looked at in, in trade rules? Uh, the Internet of Things, you know, smarter and smarter appliances. Should we have more unified standards about how safe these products should be, how they can be interoperable? In other words, how can these machines talk to each other, even if they're made all over the world and, and shipped all over the world? So it's basically a question, as, as is often the case when it comes to trade rules, of which standards apply and who sets these standards. And are there any standards out there right now? On the European level, we are um, setting standards, for example, on data protection, on the protection of net neutrality, on the protection of consumer rights, uh, but also other elements that are applying on, on the European market. But if you look at the, the uh, global nature of uh, trade and also services these days, it is probably time to do more. So could you maybe like walk me through an example of what like an optimal digital trade policy would look like from your perspective um, using you know, any example you can think of in terms of like a digital product, like, like well, from, it's really from start a huge to finish? Question. It's really a huge question. Uh, you know, what an optimal digital trade policy would look well, like. Well, it's the one you're clearly writing, uh, but, um, yes, from, but from, I'm in the middle from like of an end user well. perspective. Um, so for example, um, let me think, um, a smart appliance. So for example, a, 
uh, fridge uh, that uh, looks at what is in the fridge. Um, you know whether you need to buy milk and sends a sends a note to your to your automated uh, shopping list. Um, you know it it also may um, have a smart temperature meter so that it doesn't have to work as hard when it's cold. Uh, in the room that it stands in or or when it's warm uh, it has to make a larger effort etc uh, if there are only goods in there there that are less perishable perhaps it doesn't have to cool it as strong i mean a smart fridge which could be made in many places in the world so maybe some components are made in in asia other components are made in the united states with uh, with steel that has come from china etc so all these supply chains are global and at one point, one fridge has to emerge and it has um, uh, the ability to connect to the Internet um, or to uh, a, a smart system through which it can talk to other appliances like your phone or your, your um, computer. If there is not a minimum safety standard in terms of uh, cybersecurity, in this fridge, not only security like the battery is not supposed to blow up or, uh, you know, energy standards are supposed to be uh, measurable or environmental standards are supposed to be kept, but also digital security are required and are actually tested before this fridge is plugged into your uh, system, then we may have, uh, you know, a very vulnerable uh, set of appliances, very vulnerable Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. So. To have standards and to have agreement on where they are measured and what the consequences are if they are breached, uh, what the penalties are, for example, if they are breached, are, uh, are, I think, an important element. So you have standards in terms of can these machines talk to each other, but also standards in terms of are they secure, um, standards in terms of where, where are the supply chains and how do we check uh, how the production um, is done. I mean, it's it's an integration of digital with normal trade rules. Well, it's, it's pretty. I mean, it's cutting edge stuff. Like, how did you come to this this topic, this I, idea? Um, I mean, you, you know, I've, I've heard of things like you know, the, the smart TVs that can record you or start recording you, like if they have, if they're mounted with a camera, like kind of turn on without people not- noticing. Um, yep. You have you know, you're you're you've heard these kind of kind of nightmare stories. But like, how did you come to this? As, as a topic, something that you as an individual member of, of the European Parliament wanted to take on? Well, because in general, I don't only care about trade rules and rules-based trade, but I also really care about the rule of law. And I think we have an extraordinary challenge to make sure that the rule of law remains meaningful in a hyper-connected world. So you have you know, people in different jurisdictions, you have countries with different different levels of respect for universal human rights, but still you have globally operating services. And the question is really, how are we going to make sure that the public interest is safeguarded? So, for example, that we decide in our democratic societies what uh, uh, to do to ensure freedom of expression remains and uh, to not see uh, the situation that we have today where a Facebook decides that breastfeeding is... is um, uh, inappropriate and starts to automatically take down photos showing women breastfeeding. And now you may think, okay, breastfeeding, how important is that? But recently, Facebook also took down a picture of a Roman statue of Neptune in Rome or the picture of the napalm girl uh, after the uh, atomic attack. 
And so basically you want to ask yourself, do you want private entities to determine what is and is not acceptable speech and expression? Or do you want the rule of law and universal freedom of expression to apply? If you if you think that the latter is better, how do you do it? So I'm constantly thinking about how the technological revolution is changing our lives and how we can make sure that the rule of law me- maintains its meaning in this hyper-connected world. And and so what's next for this 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 piece of, of policy list or legislation? Would you call it legislation? Is that the term of art? No, this is a report. So this is basically a, a call, uh, a, a, ref, a reflection on what the European Parliament wants mm-hmm. from the next law. So it's slightly less formal than uh, a law. Um, but basically, I will first produce and I'll put online, as I usually do, a working document so that people can read my intentions and give input. Then on the basis of the working document, I'll make a first draft report, which is an official document. Then colleagues from other political parties will be able to amend this. So just say, no, we want this to look different. And then at the end of that track, we first vote in the trade committee and then we vote in the full European Parliament. After that vote, we have a reflection of what the majority of the European Parliament thinks. And then that is uh, our, let's say, wish list. Maybe that's the best way to put it to the European Commission to say, hey, we would like laws that make sure that uh, Europeans' uh, data is protected, even if they are buying goods and services from all over the world. Look at how digital trade can be uh, framed in a set of rules. Um, I would love to switch gears in the last few minutes of our conversation and uh, learn more about how you became a member of the European Parliament, what your political path was, uh, how you decided to to, to run. Uh, you know, as we mentioned at the outset of the conversation, we've known each other for a while. We, we met in our student days in probably like the early 2000s. I think I probably met you while you were doing the Humanity in Action Fellowship on, on Capitol Hill uh, way back when. Um, yeah. Um, in our, in our younger years, Maricha, but thanks um, for reminding me again <laughs> that this is a long time. Yeah. 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 So uh, what, um, what was your thinking? What was your thought process? How is it that you decided to, to run for the European parliament? Like what, what inspired that decision? Well, what literally inspired it were two things. On the one hand, that European election in 2009 was really going to be an important moment for nationalist right-wing parties to test their support. So Geert Wilders, for example, his party was also the Freedom Party I mentioned, was going to participate in these European elections and they were expected to do well. So the rise of the far right was really a trend I was worried about. I also saw lots of young people my own age kind of disconnected from politics, not too interested and uh, kind of, you know, shrugging their shoulders thinking, okay, yeah, well, you know, what can I do uh, about all this? Then, at the same time, in that period, um, I was doing a lot of consulting also in the United States. There, there was the first campaign, presidential campaign for President Obama. And I'm sure you remember. Uh, It was like uh, uh, the air was electric. I mean, he was using technology in new ways. He had kind of turned around the model of campaigning in the U.S. from empowering super PACs, really to empowering individuals in the grassroots, sort of allowing everyone to participate in the campaign in whichever way they wanted. So you saw barns painted with this, uh, you know, sun uh, over the horizon. You saw kids selling cupcakes. 
you saw uh, people collecting some money in their book clubs. In other words, there was very strong buy-in from a lot of people. And a real sense, I felt, that people thought politics is about us. You know, this person speaks to us. We can be part of this change and we have to be part of this change. Really kind of push back against all these years of George W. Bush that had really uh, upset a lot of progressives and people in the political center uh, to a comeback that they thought they could make through this candidate, Barack Obama. And he inspired and, you as well. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. His, his way of engaging people and showing people that politics is about you and every person counts. And you have to connect people throughout such a massive country to participate using new technologies, I thought was extremely inspiring. And also the sort of can-do mentality that I always find in the United States, but certainly also uh, in his uh, approach, uh, you know, let's not be negative. Let's look at what we can change. Anyway, this inspired me to take a more active role in these elections. And first, I wanted to help with the campaign strategy, sort of the communications, but that was already... Uh, well organized by my political party. And then a friend pointed to this uh, long list of candidates that we needed to assemble for the European elections and said, you know, if you want to do something, why don't you become a candidate? Hmm. And I was 29 at the time. I really thought, you know, politics was was for people a bit further in their career, trying to be diplomatic. Um, And uh, I had never thought about running for office myself. But then I thought, you know, I can continue to complain about everything, but I can also participate. And, and I really thought only participating because these lists are long. We have 30 people on a European list for a total of 26 Dutch seats. And at the time, my political party had one representative in the European Parliament. I'm saying this to underline how little real expectations I ever had of getting elected. I just wanted to use it as a platform, as a learning experience, as a way to participate. Now, uh I thought if I don't end up below the 20th place on the list, my reputation will not be, uh, you know, um, damaged as a consultant. And, um, uh, you know, that, that was kind of my goal to, to end up in the uh, highest 66% of the list. Uh, and then I ended up being third on the list that the party leadership recommended to our members because we also have primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was really like, Oh, my goodness, because it was a big shock uh, also for people in my party who, who I didn't know yet, who were like, who is this newcomer? Who is this outsider? Who is this person uh, who thinks she can be a member of the European Parliament? So then a very intense period of campaigning in the primaries began with an amazing team of volunteers who were all excited about someone with a slightly different profile getting this opportunity. So uh, were, were they voting for you as an individual at that point or for the D66 as a party slate? No, for me, because th- this is this is the primaries. Mm-hmm. So uh, the members get to determine which member, which candidate, excuse me, is on which uh, list on the uh, place on the list. And so my first goal was to remain on the third spot because I thought that was a really amazing uh, opportunity. And then after the primaries, I kept the third place. And then, of course, we went for a national campaign where we wanted people to vote for our party, D66. And then Mm -hmm. we won three seats in the European Parliament. And and you had the third of (laughs) the the three. And and you became uh, one of the youngest ever, right, of uh, members of European Parliament? No, uh, there there have been younger people. But Ah. um, when I started, 20% was under 40 and I was 30. So that gives you an idea. 
I mean, I'm, I'm 38 now, so I'm still, or 10% was under 40. What did I say? 10% mm -hmm. was under 40 and I was 30. Uh, and now I don't know exactly what the figures are, but I mean, it's still a bit of a old boys network. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess have, has your, or did your youth, you're, you're more senior now, you, you, you're having gone through a second election. Um, but mm -hmm. at the time, like, did your youth, um, or uh, affect your interactions with other members of European parliaments in any meaningful way? I mean, were they dismissive of you or are they like more intrigued by you? Like, who is this newcomer? Um, I mean, I was often asked for my badge because they thought I was like an assistant <laughs> or yeah. an intern or whatever. <laughs> Um, no, I think every, there's different ways to look at this. I think every newcomer in politics has to prove him or herself, no matter how old you are, no matter who you are. So I don't think that that's unusual. I think that they didn't have high expectations of me because they thought I was very young. You know, um, some people think have lower expectations of women, I'm afraid. Um, and I also chose not to be a youth candidate, if you know what I mean. I didn't want to associate yeah. myself only with like young people's topics. I wanted to be a, a fully participating, fully respected member of parliament. That's what I wanted to establish. And I thought, you know, you can underestimate me all, all you want. But at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, we all have one vote and we all have one seat uh, and we can do with it as much as we possibly can. So... Uh, I decided to let people underestimate me, but then show them at the negotiating table, you know, that it was not necessary. Is there, is there like one to, to conclude, is there like one moment at the negotiating table where you saw people's expectations uh, of you just sort of shift in a moment when they started hearing you speak or, or any kind of moment you can think of when you, as you said earlier, sort of had that moment to prove yourself? Um, well, I did have... One time when I had spoken in the plenary in our, you know, this hall is very big. There's 750 seats. So it's a big, big room. And I had just talked uh, in a debate. And then I saw a colleague from the largest political group slowly walking towards me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder what he has to say. And this was about one and a half years into my mandate. And he said, you know, I think you're, you're doing a very good job. And I just wanted to tell you. And that's something that doesn't happen every day in politics. So I was grateful because I thought when he came, uh oh, what, you know, what's the problem kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have a funnier anecdote maybe about sort of how perceptions of younger women are in Brussels um, <clears throat> sometimes. And uh, I think it illustrates quite well how expectations can be um, changing. So I had um, just come to a, a working dinner that I was asked to chair. <clears throat> so we were going to discuss transatlantic relations, actually, with about 30 people uh, in, a, in a separate room. Uh, and while everybody was arriving, they gave a glass of you know, wine or something like that. <clears throat> and I had just entered, sorry. No, sorry. <clears throat> uh, I had just entered and um, ha had just received like a glass. So I was standing in the door opening with this glass in my hand. <laughs> and right after me, you can feel this coming, yeah. <laughs> right after me, a gentleman arrives, takes the glass and is like, thank you, and walks on. So he basically <laughs> perceives me as the waitress. Yeah. Which, you know, can happen, but it does tell you something about sort of, you know, profiles that mm -hmm. people expect who you are. He never said, let me introduce myself or whatever. Uh, and so I was a bit uh, sort of caught off guard, you know, made sure I found a new glass somewhere and went on to mingle with the people. <clears throat> and then a few minutes later, we were uh, sitting at the table. And so when everybody sat down, I said, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's, you know, such a pleasure to welcome you, etc. And then I could just see him going like, 
<laughs> because it was just it dawned on him that it was a little bit embarrassing what had just occurred. So these great, sorts great. of things happen. But, um, you know, I, I can also reflect on them uh, with a smile. And I think that the sort of the answer came in the fact that I was chairing the meeting and this person very clearly understood that he had misperceived me. And maybe that's a more valuable lesson than, you know, one I could have ever uh, talked about. Well, that that is great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marisha. This was really uh, fascinating, thoughtful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And uh, um, I hope we can uh, do this again. Yes. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Marietje. Good to catch up with, with an old friend. I typically see Marietje around kind of big international conferences. We're both at our last at the, the UN summit in September. And I'll suspect I'll probably see her in New York next September as well. And hey, we, we might have an update for you of how policies have changed or moving. I, I'd, I'd love to, to learn from Marietje. And I suspect you now do as well. Just want to give a big shout out to my premium subscribers for helping to support, sustain the show. Thank you for your contributions. It helps so much. I have more rewards that I'm going to roll out to premium subscribers, including more bonus episodes and also some other goodies like a gigantic Twitter list of 50 plus Twitter users I follow that I find helpful to help keep me abreast of the news and opinion and events that are happening around the world at any given moment. So that big list can be yours if you're a premium subscriber. To become a premium subscriber, you know what to do. You can figure it out. I have confidence in you. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye.